Okay, here's what we're going to do right now. I'm Brian, uh, if you guys are new here, I'm one of the pastors, and we are basically going to be starting a brand new series. Uh, we are going to be starting a new series going through the book of Ezra. And uh, if you guys have not been with us, typically on Sunday mornings or you're new, usually what we do is we take books of the Bible and go through them and uh, verse by verse and teach them. We just finished a series over the past about month and a half. It was an 11-week series called Theology. And we finished that as of uh, several weeks ago. And uh, over the uh, Christmas break, we had a couple other messages that had to do with you know, New Year's and Jesus and everything that has to do with Christ is always a good message. And uh, so what we're going to be doing now, we're going to shift in our gears a little bit and going way back in history to a period of time in the Jewish people's history um, during a period of time called the exile or post-exile. I'll explain what that means in a moment here. We're going to be taking a look at the study uh, in the book of Ezra. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work. We've got a lot of stuff to cover here this morning. Today is just sort of like a trailer, all right? It's kind of what today's going to be like. You know, you watch a little movie, kind of get a little teaser, a little trailer. That's what today's going to be. It's a little trailer uh, of the entire book of Ezra. Uh, try to give a little bit of a direction, kind of navigate uh, as to where we're going to be heading over the next few months as we study the book of Ezra. I'll tell you why we're going to be studying the book of Ezra in just a moment here. So let's pray. We'll get to work. We've got a lot to cover here this morning. Uh, I, I, I First of all, I just want to say we discovered a new way of getting first service people here on time. We just, we just, we totally threw you guys off and say we're going to have one service. So congratulations to every first, per, first service person that got here in time. Um, that was purposeful. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you have uh, demonstrated to us through the cross. We're here today, God, because we have been changed by the cross. We're here today because we've been transformed by the blood. God, our lives have been redeemed and we're new creations in Christ. And we thank you for that. We want to know how to walk properly accordingly to that. So we ask you, God, this morning that as we consider uh, this message, this story from the Old Testament as to how it sort of translates over into transforming our lives. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move and work and bring transformation through the power of the Word of God, that our minds would be renewed and we'd be changed. we become more like Christ. And so we dedicate, we give to you, we lay everything down if you here this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to basically begin, sort of preface this whole entire series by saying, the reason why I, I wanted to go through Ezra, I started reason, reading the book of Ezra several months ago, kind of studying it. Uh, the Lord began to really speak to my heart through it. And one of the things that sort of uh, became very clear to me is really the book of Ezra is about God calling people from a place of oppression, of exile, which we'll explain what that is in just a moment here, and back into the land of Canaan. All right, I'll give you guys a little bit of a history about all of this in just a moment. I'm just going to give you a real brief overview of why we're going to be looking at this. And what happens is basically God says to his people through this guy by the name of Ezra and other people that are part of this whole uh, working, building project, that God says, I, I want to reestablish, to rebuild my temple in the middle of the people of Israel, in their midst, and so that the rest of the world will be transformed. It was really God's intention that through the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the temple, that God's glory be restored to His people Israel. And ultimately through that, God's glory would be seen 
in a way by all of the other nations that would lead people to realize we don't have to live life the way that we've been currently living life. There's a better way to live. And the better way to live is under the authority of the living God. That's basically what the book of Ezra is about. Is God restoring His presence, His glory, His power in the midst, in the center of His people. And as His people respond to that, they bring transformation, they bring change. Or if you were to take this whole concept from the Old Testament and sort of transpose it into the New Testament, Jesus would say something like this, Let your light so shine, so that all the world might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the way Jesus would put it. Or he would say something like this, a city set upon a hilltop can't be hidden so that people, when they see the city in the midst of the darkness, they'd realize that there's a better way to do life. There's a better way to live. There is a way to live that is through God. So the problem is in the rest of this world, the way the Bible sort of portrays this is everybody in this world is trying hard to live. Yet in reality, people live, but they're really dead. And the reason why we live, but we're really dead, is because we're not in submission to God. We don't love God naturally. We're born in a way, in a, in a world in which we don't naturally want to submit to God. We don't want to love God. We don't want to have God in our lives, in our ways. And ultimately what happens is we find our lives being destroyed. Sin dominates. And we've been looking at this over the past few weeks through our series on theology, that really what happens, all this sort of means in this world, is we live in conflict. We live in conflict with each other. We live in conflict with our environment. We live in conflict with ourselves. We live in conflict with God. And the way that God remedies this or changes this is He says, submit to me. Love me. Serve me. I'll be a good Lord to you. I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will guide you. And people who submit to the rulership and the lordship of Christ, they discover that God makes good on all of His promises. Alright? So the reality is that some of us here might, right now, might be looking at our lives and thinking, I've been trying to do life by myself, without God, without submission to God, without loving God. And what happens is you might find yourself in sort of an existence, but you're really not living. Okay? Life comes through the cross. Life comes through Jesus. So, back to the story. God is wanting to establish His glory in the center of His people so that His people would be a light to the nations of how good God is and respond to God and love God and serve God joyfully and in turn, have life. That's why we're studying this. So as we move forward as a church, as we are a group of people here, how this becomes very practical in San Luis Obispo, is we live in a city, we live in a culture that by and large does not, even though San Luis Obispo is very uh, conservative, there's a lot of Christians in San Luis Obispo, I'm not even really sure what the percentage is, but I feel like there's a lot of churches in San Luis, a lot of good churches, a lot of thriving churches in San Luis. And it seems as if San Luis, for the most part, is kind of a, a seat of a lot of um, you know, conservative thought and morality. And so the reality is this, is that even though that there might be a lot of conservative thought and, reality, uh, and, and, and thought and understanding about ways in life, 
by and large, the majority of the culture really does not recognize God as the sole authority and leader. They don't submit to God. And so what happens is we see people finding themselves living life dead. Trying to make through with life, trying to find existence, but in reality they're not experiencing the life that God wants to have. What happens is God wants to change this. God wants marriages that actually flourish, not just sort of survive. God wants families that are actually filled with God's glory, not just sort of dad coming home from work every single day, watching TV, ignoring his kids, and just continuing on this horrific rhythm. God wants to see lives change. God wants to see a husband truly love his spouse and a, and a woman absolutely love her husband. And God wants to see business owners actually love their employees and take good care of them. And people that are citizens in San Luis Obispo, God wants to see us actually caring about our neighbors. So that when somebody's hurting or somebody's going through a hard time, we go out of our way to try to demonstrate love and kindness. Isn't that the type of culture really we all want to live in? Now, in reality, we might not think about it all that much, but I'll tell you what, when you go through a hard time and you realize nobody's given the love, you're like, man, I wish things were different, right? It's like when nobody's given the love to you and you need the love, you're like, man, society stinks. I wish it was better. Well, you know, it can be better by submitting to the authority of God and letting the life of God live out. Through us. What happens is you have this community of people who love each other, who love God, who serve one another. You fulfill the law of Christ, which is to care for one another. I'll give you an example of this, how this plays out, okay? The way the gospel plays out, the way the presence of God plays out in the hearts and the lives of God's people is something like this. If you love somebody, do you think you're going to be dealing with wanting to rip them off and steal from them? No. Because you love them, right? If, if you love somebody, do you think you're going to want to cheat on their spouse? No, because you respect them. You love them. If you love somebody, do you think you're going to be living with this nagging passion of lust for their goods? No, because you love them. And that's what the Bible teaches, is that when we submit to God and the rulership of God, the leadership of God in our lives, uh, society is transformed. All that being said, we live in a city that by and large does not embrace, accept, value, love God ultimately. And that's why we have the issues we have. But God, because He loves His culture, even though it's rotten from inside out, he places a community of people within that culture to demonstrate to them what life can truly be like in submission to the living God. That's called the church. The church is God's preserving means to demonstrate His greatness and His glory. All right. So reality, what we're going to be looking at is in the same way Ezra was commissioned by God to basically chronicle the story of the reconstruction of the temple in the middle of Jerusalem that had been broken down, in a lot of the same way, God also calls the church to be sort of a living organism in the midst of a decaying culture to demonstrate how great 
God is. So that's kind of where we're going with that. So with that being said, let's jump in. I have a few questions that we're going to ask as we kind of make our way through this. So the first question I want to ask as we look at this, if you guys want, why don't you turn to Ezra right now. Turn to Ezra. Some of you are like, where's Ezra? Where's Ezra? It's okay to look at the table of contents. Do not feel bad about that. We love you. It's okay. Look, I'll, I'll even turn to myself. Table of contents. What page is it on? It's okay. Go ahead. We all love you. Um, turn to Ezra. It's just before the book of Nehemiah. Just before the book of Nehemiah. Right after Second Chronicles. Ezra. So the first question that we're going to ask is really who is the author? Okay, so the first thing that we're going to take a look at is this. The author is a guy by the name of Ezra. All right? Obviously. Now, Ezra is a guy that is believed to have written several books in the Old Testament. Some people believe that he actually wrote First and Second Chronicles. Uh, we're told in just a moment here that he was a scribe. We'll look at that in a second. Um, and so Ezra was this guy who wrote this book. Um, an interesting little bit of a background about him. Uh, Ezra 7, 1 through 5 tells us he's the son of a Shariah, who was the high priest taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Um, he's a descendant of this guy by the name of Phineas, who happens to be the grandson of Aaron. You're like, so what? Well, what's important about this, I mean, if you were, if you were Jewish and you're reading this, you're like, ah, Ezra's a celebrity. He's a big wig, alright? He's a, he is from the lineage of Aaron. What's so great about Aaron? Well, Aaron started basically the priesthood. Okay, so in Judaism, that, that's big time. I mean, if you can trace your lineage back to the main dude, you're big time. Alright, so this is Ezra. He traces his lineage all the way back to Aaron, who also happens to be the brother of Moses. The next uh, thing that we look at is this, in terms of the author, his name. His name literally means God helps. Azar Yahu. It's a great name. Azar Yahu. That was basically what it means, God helps. Beautiful name, because in reality it sort of is prophetic of the rest of the book. The next thing we take a look at is this. Uh, his occupation. We're told that Ezra was a scribe. Ezra was a scribe. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might be familiar with this particular phrase, scribe. Usually in the New Testament, it's accompanied with two other names, uh, Pharisee and Sadducee. So whenever you see kind of Jesus getting in fights with people, it's usually either with scribes, Pharisees, or Sadducees. Okay, so you need to know something a little bit about scribes. Um, scribes were actually heroes of the faith. All right, scribes were actually heroes of Judaism. They weren't necessarily bad guys. You know, sometimes we read in the New Testament, we think scribes, bad guys. Pharisees, bad guys. Not all of them. Some of them were. We'll find out why in just a moment. But for the most part, scribes were good. Um, it's kind of interesting that according to even the rabbis, uh, uh, Ezra was recognized as one of the greatest of all of the Torah uh, um, students. He understood the Torah perhaps better than anybody else, just shy of Moses. So what does that mean? That basically puts Ezra at a very, very high status in the minds of the Jews. Very well recognized, very well loved and appreciated man of God of ancient Judaism and antiquity. All right. Um, we're also told that he established, he's basically the forefather of sort of the scribal movement. Um, if you guys are familiar with the Sanhedrin, right? New Testament. This is the body of rulers that put Jesus to death. Sanhedrin was the 70 ruling leaders of Israel. 
that ultimately were responsible for voting, saying, Jesus must die, let's put him to death. The main guy that was in charge of all of the Sanhedrin was called the high priest. And Ezra was basically the forefather of this. So in some ways, Ezra is to the Sanhedrin as George Washington is to our United States. That's the way the Jews would have looked at Ezra. He was the forerunner, the forefather of this entire movement. One of the reasons why uh, Ezra became popular or this whole concept of scribe uh, became very popular during this time. Um, we'll, we'll get into the history a little bit more in just a moment, but I just kind of give you a little bit of background about this. Is because what happened was when the Jews went off into Babylon, they were taken away from their homeland. So imagine living in America here, and let's just say the Canadians came down. They're like, eh, we're taking you back, eh? So they take us out of our country, and they take us to Saskatchewan or something. All right, it's cold up there, we hate it. None of us like hockey, except like one or two. And, 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 and we're in a foreign land. It's just horrible. It's horrible. That's what would happen. They, they were taken away from their land of Israel, and, and they were taken away from everything that they had known. All right, they didn't have internet back then, obviously, and they didn't really have the type of books that we have today. They relied upon scrolls. So when they were taken away to Babylon... They were very limited in what they had. So a lot of the people didn't really have scrolls to read the Bible on. And the way that they made copies of it is because, you know, Gutenberg didn't come around and would have... Did, yeah, we'll scratch it off of the message. They didn't even come around for another, you know, 1,500 or so years. What happens is the way that they would make copies is they would write them. They would scribe them. And that's basically what the word scribe means. It means to engrave or to carve. It also actually has kind of the idea in the Hebrew of taking a stone and carving an initial into it. Uh, also the same idea with sort of papyrus or some other type of uh, um, a paper in which they would write on. So a scribe would do that. So take a look at the next uh, slide. And what you'll see is some of the, the, the ways in which the scribe would basically uh, submit to certain rules of copying a certain biblical text. It's kind of fascinating. Um, first of all, they'd only use the uh, skins of animals that were clean. All right, that, that means um, like a, a sheep or a goat, only that were clean. Um, if it had kind of a, a marking on it that was bad, they wouldn't use that. So it would only write upon these skins that were clean. And when they would bind them, kind of put them into the, sort of these either codexes or books, books, they would they would only make sure that the animals were are clean. Um, they don't. They would write no less than 48 lines and no more than 60 lines per page. So they had a real kind of a rule of engagement as to the way that they were to, uh, to you know, go about their particular art. Um, the ink must be black. It was made from a real special uh, type of recipe. Uh, they must speak each word aloud while writing. So imagine that. Here they are. They're writing God's word. Every word they write, they would speak it just prior to writing it down. Here's another one. Uh, they must wipe the pen and wash their bodies and their clothes every single time they wrote the Word of God or the name of God. Every time. Can you imagine that? Like you're the scribe and you're writing like the Psalms. Like every three minutes, right, you're taking a bath. Like, ah, another one, you know? That's because they viewed the name of God so sacred. All right, this was such an accurate form of... Uh, writing down the Word of God. All right. Some people have asked, you know, maybe you've been one of the types of people that have kind of asked the question, you can't trust the Bible. It's been written and rewritten so many times. It's got so many errors. It's all messed up. 
That's what people thought until they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a group or a collection of writings that were found somewhere in the Dead Sea, believed to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. The crazy thing is, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls completely match your Bible. With the, with the exception of very minor errors that were just more or less um, punctuation that never altered the actual meaning of the text. So what that means is this, is that the Bible that you have in your laps is 100% completely reliable. Don't buy the argument when people say nobody can believe the Bible because it's been written and rewritten so many times. It's untrustworthy. Not so when you got scribes like Ezra who write books like that. All right. Um, the other thing is this, is that uh, usually after a scroll, like, let's say if they wrote a scroll and they found um, some you know, miswritten words, because everything that this guy would write, or a scribe would write, it would be subjected to a scrutiny of other priests or Levites who would read over it. And if they found any copyist errors, typically what they would do is they would take the text, and they would never burn or destroy the Word of God. Never. Because it was the Word of God. You don't destroy God's Word. What they would do is they would typically bury it. they put it into a cemetery and bury it, just like a regular human being. And they would sort of lay it to rest kind of a thing. And that was what they would do. So... That's kind of what his occupation was, what he had done. And then the final thing is this, is uh, really what was his residence or where did he live? He lived somewhere in the Persian Empire. All right, we'll look at a little bit more what the Persian Empire was and how uh, the, the extent of what it was in just a second here. But that's a little bit about who wrote this book. Again, his name's Ezra or God Helps. Okay, I want to kind of look a little bit at what the setting is. What I want to do in terms of trying to understand a little bit about the setting is I want to go back uh, several hundred years prior to the actual book of Ezra, which takes place around 500 or so B.C. Now, what you're going to find is, uh, I know it's kind of confusing when you read numbers like this that like go down. Normally, we count up, you know, but when you're looking at dates that are like B.C., everything just sort of goes down. So you'll start with the high number, and then you'll go smaller. All right? But you guys, a lot of you are college students. You already figured that one out. Um, you're smart. Um, but the point is, is that what we'll look at, we'll start off in kind of a larger context with David. We'll start with David because David uh, is sort of a hero of the Jewish people's history. David reigned at around 1000, 1010 to 971. This is when David was king. David becomes sort of the, uh, the main uh, embodiment of what a king should be like. He becomes sort of the quintessential uh, example of what a king is to be like. Uh, every other king is going to be basically compared to the standard of David. Uh, there are prophecies around David that would say that on David's throne would come a king. So all Jews really held tightly to the hope that one day there would be a king that would sit upon the throne of David, rule like David, he'd be great like David, he'd be powerful like David, he'd be good like David. Which is kind of an interesting thing, because even though David was great, David had flaws. I mean, David was not a perfect guy. I mean, the, the two most you know, profound stories that sort of circulate around David's life, or rumors, or however you want to look at it, that circulate around David's life, is his greatest accomplishment, which was Goliath, right? And his greatest defeat, which was Bathsheba, right? David's greatest accomplishment, David's greatest defeat are, are what everybody thinks about when they think about David. But it's interesting when you come to it, like in biblical history, the Bible does not deny David's 
greatest uh, failure or greatest victory, but it basically chooses to emphasize other things about David. David was a good man. He was a godly man. He was the psalmist of Israel. And on David's throne, there's going to be a king that's going to rule and reign forever. This is sort of the Bible's way, God's way of saying, look, I have grace on my servant David. I love my servant David. I, I love that about him. So what we see next, David's son, Solomon, then reigns in his stead from about 971 to 931. And, and this is an important note, that Solomon actually builds the very first temple. This is going to become important in the story. Solomon builds his temple. Now this temple is phenomenal. All right? If you're familiar with the story of Solomon building a temple, you realize that there was something very unique about this temple. It was made with a lot of gold. Um, and when, when Solomon reigned as king, Solomon basically took the kingdom to this whole new level where uh, Israel became so great and so well known and so well recognized throughout the entire known world um, that people would travel from great distances into the city of Jerusalem just to check it out. And, and they would be amazed at the, the temple that Solomon had built. One of the most uh, you know, uh, popular stories is around this lady named the Queen of Sheba, which was believed to be somewhere around Ethiopia. She was a queen. She hears about Solomon's great fame and the beauty of the city and all of these things that Solomon had done. Solomon had lots of horses, and, which back then, it's like having you know, lots of Lamborghinis. All right, I mean, if you, and if you got like good horses, like Egyptian horses or Arabian horses, I don't know anything about horses. So if you're like Egyptian horses, I don't know anything about horses. Okay, I just want you to think I do. But the bottom line is, is that here you got a guy like Solomon. He's got all these horses, all these chariots, um, stables. Man, this guy's got stables all over the place, thousands of stables for thousands of horses. This gives you a little bit of the concept as to how rich and how wise and how great the kingdom was under Solomon's reign. So much so that he builds this ginormous temple. And people from all around the world come over to take a look at it. They're amazed at the beauty of this temple. I mean, it was literally uh, this, this profound work of art, all covered or laden in gold, that just shone in the, in the glory of the desert sun, and people were in awe of it. They just were like, you're God must be really great to bless you with so much gold and so many horses and so many stables and so many wives. All right? Yes, Solomon had problems. All right? and it wasn't just the fact that he was married a thousand times, but it was the fact that he did not obey God. He didn't obey God. Sometimes people are like, you know, the Bible talks about people getting married lots of times. It actually it, it, it describes what they do, but it never can condones it. it. never says, guys, go out and get married a thousand times. In fact, it condemns it. it. says, get married once. And Solomon realizes, but Solomon fell away from God, takes the kingdom into a bad, pay, bad, bad place. Solomon has a son, and he has a general. And what happens is from around 931 to 722, Solomon's son and Solomon's leading general basically divide the kingdom into civil war. The kingdom, uh, they, they get broken in two, uh, the north and the south, or if you'd like to look at it this way, sort of Samaria or uh, Judah. Okay, so that's a little bit of the history back there, kids. So the next thing that we'll see as we kind of make our way through this, um, next slide, is we have uh, around 722, 
the destruction of Samaria. This is Israel's capital. This is kind of the capital city of the state, if you would, of Israel. This falls under the reign of the Assyrians. If you're familiar, a little bit of their history. You guys familiar with Jonah? Right? What was the city that Jonah was called to go to? Nineveh. Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. Alright, these were really wicked group of people. And yet God, according to His judgment, allows the people of Samaria to fall prey to sort of the conquering of the king of Assyria, named Sennacherib. And what happens is basically the way the Assyrians would conquer a particular area. You guys doing good so far? You guys like history? You're like, uh, really, history. Okay, you're doing great though. Just at least, you know, keep your eyes open. You're doing great though. There's a lot of stuff. Um, hopefully it'll all pay off in a moment here. Um, so what happens is uh, the, 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 the Israel people or the, this particular portion, they fall to the Assyrians. And the way the Assyrians would conquer them is rather than taking them away from their country, they would bring Assyrians into the country. And they would have the soldiers of the Assyrians intermarry or impregnate the women of the land. And they would also introduce false gods, false pagan worship into the lands. And what happened in Samaria basically came a sort of a mixed breed of Jews. What they were called? Samaritans. That's where they came from. So by the time, it gives a little bit of a background. When Jesus comes onto the scene and everybody hates the Samaritans, there's a reason why they hate the Samaritans. is because they were viewed as half-breeds. They were viewed as pagans. They didn't love and worship the living God of the people of Israel the way the Jews did. So they were viewed as really bad guys, which is it's really fascinating when you look at a lot of the teachings of Jesus, because portions of the times of Jesus' teaching, especially uh, when Jesus talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, Who's the hero of the story? Samaritan. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, this, this is this whole story of this narrative of God is fantastic. And there's so many different little like inroads into how all this works out that this, Jesus actually takes an inbred, paganistic group of people and says, I'm going to make this guy the hero in the story. And who's the enemies in the story? Who's the bad guys in the story of the Good Samaritan? Levites and the priests. Ah, Jesus' story was very subversive, wasn't it? Jesus was an interesting guy. So what happens is by 586, the destruction of Jerusalem takes place. This is under uh, the exile of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, what happens is he comes in. It's kind of an interesting story. He is actually on his way to Egypt. All right? Now you got to think of it this way. Kings were not really interested in taking over Judah. Judah was this tiny little area. I mean, even though it had, had, had sort of climaxed during the time of the reign of Solomon, by this time we're talking, this is several hundred years later, the kingdom had kind of had its ups and downs, had its own economic crises. It was not necessarily a, a place where kings sort of set their crosshairs on. They're like, i got to have Judah. It's just like a king, like Napoleon being like, i got to have a Tascadero. There's just like nothing great about it. You know what I mean? That was Judah. And not this, I mean, Tascadero is a cool, you know, watering mud hole. That's what it means. Right? But the point is that it's not a place of strategic, like, location, like, I gotta have Judah. Alright? And so what happens is the king of Judah, a guy named Josiah, which is a great guy, he goes out while the king of Babylon is on his way to a battle to Egypt 
He goes out and he basically starts flaunting all the goods that they have. This kind of raises the eyebrow of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens, Josiah ends up dying in a battle. And years later, the king of Babylon, on his way back from a battle there in Egypt, stops by Jerusalem. And he remembers all the gold, all the silver, all the riches, all the wealth that they had there in the temple. And thinks, I'm on my way back to my castle. It might be great to have a lot of extra gold. So he stops by Jerusalem and ransacks it. That's what happens. That's the story. It falls. But because the Jewish people, this is, if you want a little bit more history about this, um, read the prophecies of Jeremiah. This is when Jeremiah takes place. In fact, Jeremiah prophesies and he tells the king of, of Israel, he says, listen, let the king of Babylon come in. But think about that. That's a blow to nationalistic pride. I mean, that's, that's like a prophet going to Obama and saying, let bin Laden do whatever he wants to, nation, to our nation. And again, let Sharia law rule. I mean, it's, it's just, it is a major blow to nationalistic pride. What happens is they fight against that, and Nebuchadnezzar gets really angry, and rather than treating the people nicely, he destroys their city and destroys the Temple of Solomon. Okay? So hopefully this is starting to shape up a little bit now. We're almost done here with this section. Um, and what happens is in about 539, King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonian king, um, and he takes control of the empire, including Israel and Judah. Okay, I want you to get this. All right, you guys read the book of Daniel? All this is found in the book of Daniel. Uh, there's a guy by the name, I think it's Belteshazzar. This is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, I think, grandson. He's really arrogant, really prideful, and he's having his big party. All right, in the middle of this party, he, he orders to bring out all of this gold and silver that he finds sort of in this like closet, and he realizes it's got all this like Hebrew you know, writing and carving on it. It turns out that the gold and silver that he brings out happens to actually be the same instruments that were in Solomon's temple that his grandfather brings back from battle there once he conquers it. He's having this party, everybody's drunk, and all of a sudden, while they're in this like crazy party, uh, this writing starts to appear on the wall. And what happens is Daniel's summoned in. Daniel comes into this whole section and everybody's drunk and wasted and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. It's like a really bad frat party. And what happens is, is Daniel says, listen, here's what the writing says. Your kingdom will be divided tomorrow. That very moment, this impregnable city of Babylon, led by this arrogant, prideful grandson of a great king, says, there's no way. We're Babylon. We never fall. We have greatest technology. We have the greatest military might. And I'm the greatest president leader of the entire nation. And we're not going to fall. What happens is that very night, they were the king of the Medes and the Persians literally had broken into the castle through a water aqueduct they came in and they killed everybody that was drunk and they took over without a battle. That very night. And that's exactly what happens. That's what takes place in the book of Daniel. What happens is in the first year of that new king is everything that takes place in the book of Ezra. Alright? You guys good so far? 
All right, good. Next one. We're almost done here with this section. I want to show you a little bit about the, uh, yeah, you, you guessed it. We got a map today. You guys like maps, right? I'll show you a little bit of the, the map here. This is basically a little bit of a picture. It's not the entire thing because actually the, uh, the kingdom of uh, the Persians extended all the way over to India, way beyond there, um, or up, way up into India, parts of China. And so this is sort of a little bit of a picture of it. Can you guys all see Jerusalem, see the Mediterranean Sea, uh, the middle of the screen over to, the, to your uh, left? You see the Mediterranean Sea, then you see Jerusalem. So you can imagine um, Egypt was also this great powerhouse to the south of Jerusalem, but Persia is all the way over here down there in the Persian Gulf. Persia is actually modern-day Iran. In fact, Iranians actually prefer to be called Persian, the Persian. They, they, they take the name of that ancient great civilization called the Persians. And up in the north of Persia, you see Media. So there's a lot of dispute and debate as to where uh, the Medes come from. Some scholars actually believe that the Medes are descendants of the Kurds. The Kurds. Um, and Babylon, you can see right there, Babylon is actually ancient Iraq. In fact, if you recall, while he was still alive, Saddam Hussein actually referred to him as sort of the new Nebuchadnezzar. New Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he thought, just like the old Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, I'm also going to conquer Israel. It's kind of been a little bit of an interesting history there. So what happens is when the king of Persia, Cyrus, takes over Babylon, he basically inherits everything that's in yellow. Everything. He becomes the new king. Everything becomes his. So Jerusalem becomes his as well. That's exactly where we find ourselves in the story. Okay, so the next one is this. About 538, Cyrus issues this decree that the Jewish exiles were free to return home. So what happens is he basically says, listen, all you Jews, you guys want to go home? Why don't you go home? And by this time, a lot of the Jews who had lived in Babylon, in the particular area of Babylon, they're like, some of them didn't want to go home. They began to establish sort of uh, businesses there, and uh, they established a brand new life there. And the thought of going home was like, why? We like Babylon. I mean, Babylon's great. Why would we want to leave Babylon? And so a lot of the Jews decided to stay. Several of the Jews, uh, several thousand of the Jews decided to go home. They're sort of the nationalistic Jews. They thought that we want to go home. So many of them did end up going home. Um, Cyrus's reason for this was not because he was like, I just want you guys so bad to worship your God. In fact, what happens is we find out historically this guy Cyrus, he was a king that recognized that the way that a nation is going to be great, this is his idea, was that let everybody worship their God the way they want to worship their God. And here's what he does. He basically asks every uh, religious group of people in his nation, he says, listen, I'll let you guys worship your God as long as you pray for me. Pray for me that I'll have a long reign. And so he essentially says to the Jews, for you guys to prosper, when you prosper, I prosper. So here's the deal. I'll send you guys back home. Anybody wants to go home, I'll pay for it. He literally gives the equivalent of like billions of dollars to help Jews who want to go back home to go back home. And they end up marching back. That's the beginning stages of the book of Ezra. Um, 537, there are these Jewish exiles led by... Uh, Shesh Bazar uh, returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is around Ezra chapter 1. Um, by Ezra chapter 3, the altar is rebuilt. So I'm giving you a little bit of a uh, historical uh, overview in the actual book of Ezra right now. So in Ezra chapter 3, the altar is rebuilt. The very first thing they do when they come back in the land is they rebuild the altar. altar. 
Um, I don't know what that was I just said, but they rebuild the altar. They rebuild the altar. And, uh, and then later on it goes on about verse 8 of chapter 3. The uh, temple rebuilding uh, begins. The foundations are laid. It's kind of an interesting portion of the story. We'll get there in the next few weeks to come. Um, what happens is as soon as these foundations are laid, there's a lot of new returnees that come back and they're super excited. Can you imagine the nationalistic pride? Like, our temple is going to be rebuilt right here. They're excited. They're screaming. They're shouting. It's a big party. Um, they, they, they read psalms and they, they repeat this uh, great prayer. They're like, the, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. They're screaming. They're excited. God's there in their midst. And there's a handful of like old timers. They're like really angry and they're crying. It, it says that the voice of those that were shouting for joy was matched only by those that were weeping for sadness. See, the old-timers were all bummed. They're like, this looks horrible. This is nothing like Solomon's temple. This is nothing like the good old days. All right? Um, I, I know a lot of our congregation is young, but the reality is that there come a day, perhaps, hopefully never, but we get to a place where we're like, you remember the good old days? Remember when it was just awesome, when way back when we had the Bible study? Or, you know, sometimes it doesn't even happen within our church. You know, we've grown. Uh, we are not the same church we were 15 years ago. We have grown. We, we don't fit into the Seventh-day Adventist church or my front living room the way that we used to. All right? We've grown. God has done great things in our midst, in our church. And sometimes people are like, oh, it ain't the way it was back when we were in your house. You're right. It's not the way it was back when we were in our house. Alright? It's not. But we have to recognize that God is, is moving in new ways and, 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 and ways in which God can continue to grow and bless. And so that's the lesson. What happens there is, is some people are bummed, some people are happy, and a lot of it just has to do with the perspective of what's happening. Okay, so what takes place next as we kind of move our way through this, the next thing is you'll see about 536 to 530, uh, there's adversaries that kind of uh, oppose the rebuilding of the temple. Things sort of slow down. Um, if you got your little Bibles, you can read. There's two prophecies. Um, one by the guy by the name of Haggai. Another called Zechariah. This takes place during this particular moment. These guys prophesied during this period of time. So that encourages. There's a lot of books that you can read that sort of cover this whole period of time. Daniel, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah. All of this takes place during this time. Actually, Daniel takes place a little bit before that. Um, about 530, the temple building uh, ceases. Everything sort of stops. 520, temple building resumes. So you can see that there was a pretty uh, large period of time that things sort of slowed down and stopped. About 516, the temple building is completed. So, right, great time of rejoicing. And this sort of leads to the second portion of the book, beginning about chapter 7. So the next slide you'll see is this. About five, uh, 458, Ezra leaves for Babylon. So here's the funny thing. Ezra doesn't even show up in the book until chapter 7. All right, he wrote the book, but doesn't even show up until after the temple is already rebuilt in chapter 7. Five, or 458, the Jews assemble at Jerusalem. Um, in about chapter 10, all of these Jews are there. Um, that's kind of the entire book of Ezra. All right, here's a couple more. We're done with this whole section. Five, or 458, oh, I keep saying 5. Dyslexic. Okay, 458 to 457, officials conduct about a three-month investigation in the sins of intermarriage. Like, is intermarriage bad? We'll get there. We will get there. All right? 
you'll find out what all that's about. And about 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes on the scene. So this is when the book of Nehemiah basically takes place. And he returns to Jerusalem to rebuild and reconstruct the walls of the city of which the temple has just been rebuilt. Okay, last one is this. The walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt around 445. Some debate as to exactly when the date of that happened. So here's what happens. All of this takes place. Ezra leads or chronicles this whole story. The temple's rebuilt. And then later on through Nehemiah, the walls are rebuilt. How important is it to have a walled city? Way back when, there were no police force. All right? It was sort of all tribal. People needed desperately walls around the city. And so Nehemiah comes and fulfills that and takes care of that. Or, here's a nice big outline for you. If you're into sort of like megachurch pastor outlines, you can say this. God's hand restores. All right? God's word reveals. God's people repent. That's the story of Ezra. All right? In megachurch format. All right? Here's, here's, listen to what it says again. Um, God's hand restores. God renews, restores the, the, the city of, of Jerusalem. By helping the temple to be rebuilt. God placing His glory back in the middle of them. God's Word reveals. Uh, what happens is God word, God's Word comes back out and people are cut to the heart. They repent. And then finally, they change. Meaning, by their repentance, they turn from doing life their ways and they begin to do life God's ways. Alright? That's, that's the Gospel, guys. In, in, in short, God shows up God says, I want to transform you. I want to change you from doing the way that you have done life. Your way has led to destruction, to oppression, to exile. God says, I'll deliver you and set you free. And we repent from our ways and from our stubbornness. And we begin to follow after God. And we have life. Okay? Alright. I want to also just finish this up here by taking a look at this whole story from the perspective of Zechariah. Uh, one of God's prophets. So I'm going to read you a bunch of verses here. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. If you guys want to turn there, that'd be great. It's good for you guys to know where Zechariah is at. It's probably the one that has a lot of cobwebs on it. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. It's in a section called the Minor Prophets. Not because they were small but because the major prophets, which would be like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, these guys wrote books that were like 50, 60 chapters long, and these guys wrote books that were like 10 chapters long. Major, minor prophets. All right, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. says this, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Again, this is all during the period of time of, of, of Ezra. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Stop oppressing the widow and the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in his heart. Why does God issue, issue this command? Because they were doing the opposite. Their court systems were all messed up. People were taking advantage of one another. Uh, people that were widows were just being left on the wayside to die, orphans, nobody cared about them, everybody was taking advantage of everybody else, and I know we know nothing about this because our culture is completely foreign to this type of activity. So God basically says, stop living like this. 
Start caring for one another. Start loving one another. Start serving one another. Stop acting like this. And then he goes on. He says, but they refused to pay attention and they turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears so that they might not hear and they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law of the words of the Lord of hosts and, uh, that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger from God, from the Lord of hosts, as I said, or as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. So here's what God's saying is that, listen, you guys wouldn't listen to what I said to you. So therefore, when you guys had difficult times, you called to me and I wouldn't hear to you. I was like, I called to you and you wouldn't listen. Now you're calling to me and I'm not going to listen. Right? God's saying, this is, this is a relationship I want to have with you. Not just about doing religious duties. It's not just about offering a sacrifice and being like, I did my thing. I went to church on Sunday and everything's cool with me. God's like, no, the way this works is I speak, you respond, we live together. We do life together. You do life. You find life by submitting to my law. My law is life. Jesus is life. The way Jesus would continue to emphasize in the New Testament. Verse 14. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations so that they had not known. Thus the hand of the Lord left uh, thus the land that they left was desolate, so that none went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So what happens is God's saying the Babylonians came in, destroyed the land, and that's where they find themselves right now. Um, the land of Israel was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, all nationalistic pride was destroyed. It was basically what happened um, in some ways of emotion, what happened to America Back on 9-11, we felt vulnerable, we felt destroyed, our nationalistic pride sunk to a real low, and then it kind of climbed back up again. But what happened was we realized we are not as strong and as impenetrable as we thought we were, and thousands of people are dead. God's saying, I brought this upon you guys because you nobody would listen to me, and then skip down about chapter 8, verse 4, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men... Old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. So I love this because God's saying, listen, the hand that wounded is the hand that's also going to heal. God's going to say, listen, there's going to come a day where old ladies, little kids are going to be running around in the streets of Jerusalem again. It's going to be great. All right? It's going to be a great... God's saying, I'm going to restore everything that was broken. Verse 5, and the streets will be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, it is a marvelous in their sight and a remnant of the people of those days should it be as marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they will dwell in, in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. So God's saying that, listen, even though you didn't obey me, even though you didn't love me with all your heart, God says, I will bring things back in such a way where I will bless you again. And I will be your God. You will be my people. You will have life. It's just beautiful promises. So imagine yourself being a Jew, living in sort of the, the, the after effects of a destroyed nation and hearing a statement like this. Your heart just rises with hope. Ah, God's going to redeem Take a look at about verse 8 down about uh, chapter 8 verse 22. It says many peoples 
And strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. Now again, everything is emphasized upon in Jerusalem. He says, and they will entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. This is amazing. Like God said, there's going to come a day where people from Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia, they're going to lay a hold of the robes of the Jews and say, can we please go with you? We heard that God is with you guys. We want to know your God. We want to know how great your God is. Okay, jump forward about chapter 9, verse 9. And God basically going to promise, He's going to say, listen, the way all of this is going to work out is I will sit at my throne and I will provide a king. So I love this. Check, check, it, check this out, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So God says, listen, you want to rejoice? Rejoice. I got a king for you. God's like, I'm going to give you a king. Everything's going to climax by a king. I'm going to set him up. He's going to be like David. Remember those those moments where David reigned as king? How good those days were? God says, I got a king for you. And I love this. He says, rejoice. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Got to, at this moment, just kind of imagine the anticipation. Like, yes, the king's coming. This is awesome. Our king's coming. And he goes and he says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, and he is humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a fowl of a donkey. And you remember, when Jesus comes in the city of Jerusalem, he fulfills his prophecy. Jesus says, Today, this prophecy is fulfilled. I am the king. But it gets better than this, because take a look at about verse 16. It says this, on that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. Who's going to be the king? Who will do the saving? God. The book of Ezra really is a book that looks forward to the moment, the time, when the glory of God will be restored, not in a building, not in a building, but in a man. The person of Jesus. And I love this. Listen to how this plays out. It says, on that day the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his head. I love verse 17. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Guys, that verse, I want you to think about this. How great is God's goodness. How great is God's beauty. I mean, we think of a lot of things in this world about beauty. We like beauty. We stand in awe of beautiful things. This is why people pause and they like art, right? Or they, they like you know, things that sort of represent beauty. Here's what the writer here is saying, is that God is all beauty. He's the author of all beauty. Okay, jump forward, if you would, real quick to another passage here. We're almost done here. Take a look at about uh, verse, chapter 14, verse 9. Chapter 14, verse 9 says this, And the Lord will be king over all of the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. So here's what the prophet is saying. That there will come a day when God be the king. He will be the king. He will establish His rightful reign and all of the glory of, of the nations will be focused upon God. Not so much a building. So here's what happens. The way this continues to play out 
Take a look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. In Jesus' life, what happens is while Jesus is living, Jesus makes several statements. He talks about to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, listen, there's one greater than the temple that's here. Jesus ends up getting arrested. He's standing before Caiaphas. Who's Caiaphas? He's the high priest. I love this verse. It kind of juxtaposes Jesus' life with everything that we just looked at so far. Take a look at this. It says this in verse 57. They led Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. Take this out. And the scribes. I love this. The scribes. Ezra's about, he's a scribe. And the scribes and the elders had gathered. Two false witnesses came forward and they said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple. The temple of God. And to rebuild it in three days. But Jesus remained silent. The false accusation to make against Jesus is that, listen, you're claiming to destroy the most sacred place in all Israel. Here's what happens. Jesus says, that's not the most sacred place. I am. The glory of the temple was not a building, was not stones, was not incense, was not a fire, was not a sacrifice. The glory of the temple was me. That's the whole point. That's what he's trying to communicate. It says, but Jesus remained silent. It says, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, the next verse goes on to finish up this little section here. It says, then Jesus said to him, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You know, this is Jesus' way of saying in first century idiom, I will be vindicated. Because the next time you see me, I will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what Jesus is doing is He's bringing their minds back to the prophecies of Zechariah when God says, I will be King and I will be Savior. And Jesus says, you want to know the real truth? The truth is not about a building. The truth is not about how you are trying hard to fight, to secure, to protect this little piece of property in which a building stands, in which everything, this little religious system you have set up, Jesus says, the ultimate which will one day take place, is I will be vindicated because I will be the King of Kings and I will be the Lord of Lords. Whoa! (laughs) That wasn't small, was it? Um, Okay, nobody even saw that, huh? Wow, okay. Um, (laughs) Okay, next one is this. Last one is this. Revelation chapter 21. Actually, Matthew 27. Jesus dies on the cross. As He dies on the cross... All of a sudden, the veil of the temple is torn. The veil. This was the, 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 the cloth that separated the most holy place, which is where God's presence was, from the rest of the world. God's basically saying, listen, it's not about a building, guys. It's about my glory being seen throughout all the earth. Take a look at a couple more verses. We're just about done. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says this. This is going to jump forward really far into the future. I want you to see how this theme of temple in God's presence sort of uh, correspond in the future. Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And, I, and He will dwell in them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. All of these are references back to Zechariah. See, in the city of Jerusalem, back during the times of the temple, the way that the Jews viewed the temple was very sacred. They actually viewed the temple as being the intersection between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth collided. Heaven and earth intersected at the temple. That was where God 
chose to meet with man. That was the way they interpreted the temple. And Jesus says, no. For a season that was the case. But beyond that season, now that the actual substance for which the temple was merely a shadow has arrived, Jesus says, now I am the place where heaven and earth intersect. I am the place where people intersect with God, where people interact with God, where people meet God, where people are made right with God. So here's the issue. This is why Jesus has to be central to the gospel and the teaching of the Bible itself. You remove Jesus, you remove life. Jesus is the place where God has chosen to meet with His people. Here's the last one. Revelation 21 verse 3 says this. Love this. Take a look at this. And I saw. So John's blown away by this. He says, and I saw no temple. Where is it at? He says, listen to this. This is powerful. He says, I saw no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God Almighty. The story of Ezra builds this temple as a temporary means where heaven intersects earth. The story of Jesus coming is the story of Jesus taking up residence in the hearts of His people called the church, which is where heaven and earth intersect. You guys, I want you to get this. I want you to live the Gospel. The Gospel is that as believers, as Christians... It is not enough for us to just say, I go to church. I read my Bible. I separate from bad people. If that is the limitation of your concept, then there's areas that you've got to grow in your faith. Christianity is not about somehow pulling away from the world and saying, I've got to protect myself. I've got to insulate myself. Isolate myself from the bad people. No. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is that as places that housed the living God inside of us. It's meant to be in such a way that the world would look at us and see there's a better way to live with God as Lord. That's the church. That's the church. I want for us to get that, to live that, to recognize that's the miracle of what Jesus did in coming into this world, dying, rising again, in imparting the Spirit of God to live inside of us, we, as Paul would say, are now living temples. We are the place where God intersects with humanity that's still in exile. So that we can demonstrate to the world that our God is great. So that people would be coming to us and saying, how do I save my marriage? How do I help my kids deal with drug addictions? How do I get through a fact that my kids have got some sort of a disease and I don't know how to work through it? The answers come through the fact that God lives with us and we live in this world to demonstrate the kindness, the grace, and the mercy, and the love of God. Guys, if we really get this, if we really get this, we would live radically. We would live in a way that does not look like the rest of the world settling in to the culture, becoming like everybody else, but rather living radical lives, saying, I want the world to see how good and how beautiful my God is.
Last thing is this. We learn from this whole story, really, three fast things. One, that the Lord is really serious about being the center of all things. He's serious about being the center of all things. Secondly, we learn that the Lord is really faithful to His promises. Love this about the story. We just realize God is always faithful to His promises. And the last thing is this, is that the Lord works providentially through all things. God even uses a pagan king and says, I'm going to get my work accomplished. I'm going to use this guy Cyrus and I'm going to do my work. The way this translates into our lives is that if we are truly the church, if we are truly living with an understanding of how great our God is, we would live radically different lives and oftentimes the way we do.